anyway, great to know. I want you to be a part of that. Lots of fun stuff. So we are in a series called Jesus for President. What I mean by series, it just means it's going to take us a little while to work through it. And the reality is uh, we're going to work all the way through this for the next several weeks up until the election and then the following week after the election where we're going to see that Jesus still has authority. In fact, we see in the, we'll see in that passage that Jesus has authority over demons. So maybe you'll think whoever wins is on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of you know, the kingdom. Well, the good news is Jesus still has authority, so keep showing up, keep coming. And here's kind of the big idea of the series, and we're going to kind of flesh this out, unpack it each and every week, is, hey, we, we think you probably should place your vote for a candidate this year, right? But you cannot place your hope in that candidate. What I mean by that is Donald Trump, President Trump, is not your savior. And what I mean by that is former President, Vice President Joe Biden, he's not your savior, savior either, right? This is, this is not where we're going to put our hope, right? And yet we have this responsibility, we think, to uh, discern from the Lord on how we should place our vote. And we're going to help you do that. I'm not going to tell you to vote for it. We're going to help you make some uh, biblical and practical decisions about that over the next several weeks. But today, 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 I'm not going to uh, help you with that. What I hope happens for you today. Last week, what I wanted you to see is that there is a new option in a new kingdom that you can place your hope in, right? That there literally is a king of kings and lord of lords. That's, that's Jesus, and he rules and he reigns. And so could we consider, possibly, that God is still at work, that he's bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory at all times, right? And can we consider that and put our eyes and our attention and our focus, right? Not on the donkey, not on the uh, elephant, but on the lamb. Could we do that over this season? So if you're a Christian, could we double down on our hope in that? And that's why each day you can, you can click on the website right at the very top at clcfamily.church and participate in reading the scriptures and praying every single day as a church for this upcoming election. Or you can follow our social media, whether that, uh, that is uh, our Facebook or Instagram pages, where each morning you can wake up and uh, kind of turn your focus back to Jesus and uh, read the scriptures and those things. So if you're a Christian, would we double down on that? And if you're not a Christian, Look, the reality is you would, we, you would declare and identify this world the same way we would. It's broken. What I told you last week is our nation is sick. And the reason our nation is sick is because you and I, we're, we're sick, we're broken. The very things that we commit to in our own lives, we can't follow through with. And we are really, really aware that our politicians can't. And so so maybe, this, maybe this season, maybe this time for the very first time, would you consider, consider maybe there's a more viable option for us over this season, and that's why we're talking about Jesus for president. And so, what we have here, let me just kind of remind you of all these things, really, really important, is that we are in this series called the Gospel of Luke. So we've been in there 12, 13 weeks. There is, I mean, there's 15 hours worth of material on this now, so you can go to the website, listen to it, uh, the sermons. And so, uh, several months back, back in June, July, we started this series where we began working through the gospel of Luke, and we're just going to continue going through it verse by verse by verse, and today's really, really exciting, because we, I know you've all been waiting for this, this is the best part of the verses, it's the genealogy where we get to read a lot of names that we don't know, right, lots, lots of fun, I know this is why you're here, I know this is why you're looking forward to it, you're like, hey, I have work off tomorrow, but I'm going, because this is the genealogy, this is, this is my jam, right, so we're just going to work through it, that was facetious, no one thinks that, I don't think, in fact, as you start reading the scriptures, you get to Matthew and the genealogy, or Luke, this is where you kind of just go, let me just jump to the next section, right? But let me remind you of what's going on here. And so um, we're reading through this gospel called the Gospel of Luke. Got it? Gospel of Luke. And so Luke was a physician and scientist. 
And uh, he was hired, no joke, this is all true, by this guy named Theophilus to go and basically do a research on whether or not Jesus was actually Lord. See, the problem is, is Theophilus, what we think probably was a, um, a Roman official in the government, and he would have had lots of wealth, lots of influence, lots of uh, power, all those things, right? But he would have had to make this statement out loud that Caesar is Lord. Now, if you're like me, and he was like us, you got it right. Now, you go, man, there is no way that some fallible human is Lord, right? They even looked at the, the coinage that would have had this declaration, all the, all the, you know, all the money, all the monetary things, and they would have said that Caesar's Lord. And so Theophilus has this suspicion that maybe there's a better way, right? And so what he does, because he's wealthy, has the money to do it, uh, he hires this guy named Luke to go and spend years, if not a decade or more. This is all true. This is not folklore, myth, or legend. This doesn't just get captured in the scriptures. In fact, what we know about this is more from, you know, secular writings in, in the first century from folks like Josephus, a, a Jewish biographer, or a Jewish historian. And so what we see here is he hires Luke to go and study all the stuff. So this guy who is well-trained, well-educated, uh, spends years, if not a decade or more, going and studying and trying to figure out whether or not this guy named Jesus is worth trusting, right? And so what, what the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1, is what Luke tells us in his own gospel writing, this is a biography about Jesus' life, is that um, he went and he read all the written documents. You're going to see that show up today. He went and sat with all the eyewitnesses and took in their stories. And he went and heard all the oral arguments and traditions that were declared from the synagogues and the local marketplaces. And he gathered all this information. And what it tells us is he puts together this orderly account. And what he tells us is he does all this stuff for Theophilus and for us so that we could have certainty of the things that we've been taught. In other words, what we've been taught, what they've been taught is that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So each and every week we've kind of been reading about the story of Jesus and what we kind of understood and I want you to be reminded of this that there's kind of two parts to this when you look at all the scriptures you got this part promise right promises we just sang some songs about it we'll sing some more at the very end about this this idea that there is a hope and a plan and so throughout the scriptures the old testament 39 books are all about promise they're all about a broken world and broken people. And throughout the Old Testament, what we see over and over again is that there's a declaration that one, and at some point, God will make a way where there is no way. He will take everything sad and make it untrue, right? He'll, he'll work all things together, like we just saying, for our good and his glory. And so there's this declaration. In fact, 220 times at least, God speaks to a prophet and tells him to declare good news to the people. And all the good news was that one day it'll all be fixed. Right? And so that's what the Old Testament's about. It's all about this, these promises that one day God would make everything right. Then the New Testament, you know, 27 different books are all about this. Fulfillment. How all the promises get fulfilled. Whether or not they happen in the first century or are going to happen in the future. But the one thing about all the fulfillment of all the promises, they're not hinged on uh, any of us, on any kingdom, any politician, any great humanitarian, all of it hinges on Jesus. And because all the promises are fulfilled in a person, Jesus, what Luke is going to help us understand is we can have certainty about the things we've been taught. And the way by which you have certainty is you cling to truth. Right? You go back, it's true. And what we discover in the biographies about Jesus' life, particularly in John, one of the writers about Jesus' life, one of his little buddies who followed him around and puts together this beautiful biographical sketch of Jesus' life. 
In that, he quotes Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, truth is not an idea, right? It's not some philosophy. Truth is actually a person, and that person is Jesus. So Luke is going to write about the fulfillment of that. So what he starts with is this biographical sketch of Jesus' life. But when he starts, he doesn't actually start with uh, Jesus. He actually starts with a guy named John the Baptist, right? So John the Baptist was kind of this trumpeteer, kind of a reminder of an archetype of all the Old Testament uh, prophets who declared the promises. And so John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he is making this declaration that, that we should repent. That just means to change the way you think. We should turn our focus on Jesus and repent. He says, the kingdom of God is near. Oh, you're so close. You don't put your uh, hope in the canon. You can put it into the kingdom. The way you put it in the kingdom is you put it in the king of the kingdom, that's Jesus. And so uh, he starts with this message that's coming from John the Baptist. Now, what Jesus says about this guy, really, really interesting. He says, of all the people in the world, John the Baptist is the greatest of all the people. You know, what John the Baptist tells us last week, and people are starting to put their hope and stock in him, right? Uh, the world was a mess. Jews were going, make Israel great again. No joke, right? Hey, would you do that? And they were thinking that maybe this guy was the guy who was going to make Israel great again. And what John the Baptist says is, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not your solution. Donald Trump's not your solution. Joe Biden's not your solution. Governor Wolf is not your solution. No, 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 none of them are going to be your solution in this. In fact, what John the Baptist says is, no, no, no. I must decrease, and Jesus must increase. In other words, the declaration is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Caesar. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than John. Jesus is greater than Donald Trump. Jesus is greater than Joe Biden. And so John the Baptist is going to point people not to himself. He's going to go, I'm going to have to decrease. And what's going to happen is your focus, your attention, and all your hopes are going to have to be put on Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Savior. Jesus as your hope and your Messiah. Now, the Israelites were interested in this because their life was really terrible. They were really, really oppressed. There's a lot of injustices going on. And they didn't, they were just hoping, not, they weren't looking for like big solutions. They weren't even thinking eternally, right? They're like you and I. They were thinking about how they were going to uh, save for retirement. How they were going to have enough food to eat. How they were going to stay out of prison. And so they're looking to make Israel great again in the middle of a Roman empire. And they're hoping that it's John, and John goes, it's not me, but it's Jesus. But don't think it's going to be what you think it is. This isn't about you having a great nation again. This is about you participating in the greatest kingdom to ever be on the face of the planet, because it was the only kingdom that was established by God. And so we're going to see these moments where John is, Luke is pointing to John the Baptist, who's the, pointing to Jesus, and so he starts with that message. Now, so what we've seen so far is we've seen this big story. Jesus has been quoted a couple of times, hasn't done much, right? He got, gets baptized last week. The heavens open up, and you would think, okay, now we're going to see it. Now we're going to see the good news, right? Um, for you to understand, the gospel, the one we're reading, gospel according to Luke, that gospel literally just means good news, just good news. Right, but it means good news in a way that you know, it was more like a short little script. Like imagine it this way. Um, imagine in the first century, there were a lot of wars, a lot of battles. Imagine that there was a, a group of soldiers who are who are kind of staying back from where the, the latest battle was, right? And they are waiting for directions from their um, from their you know their captain, their general, their admiral whatever you know and so they're waiting for these this news and so they're waiting for news and they don't know if the news is going to be one of two things good or bad 
good news, bad news, right? And so the bad news would be, hey, we're in big trouble. Hurry, rush. We need your help. We've been taken over. We've been, we've been taken captive, right? And so the, the generals would have written some kind of message, and they would have sent it back. And so literally the, the good news, that word, literally means you, angelion, right? Which the you means good, and angelion means message. In fact, the word angel in the scriptures literally just means messenger. So when we see these little scripts, it'd be like, uh, you know, hurry, uh, we're captive, real quick note, sent, you know, with someone on horseback, whatever, carrier, pigeon, that and go back to the place. They have to figure out whether or not they could rush to the place or whether or not they needed to retreat. But every now and then, they would get news that was called the gospel. And it would be a news of a declaration that the battle's been won. They were victorious. That there's peace and prosperity where they are. Right? And so when we see that, what we're, with that language, for us, we think about gospel as this Bible term for the first century Jews, for the first century Greeks and Gentiles and the Romans, they would have seen that message as a short announcement that there is peace and hope available. And so that would have come from an angelion, a, a messenger. So think about this. When John sets up this story, how does the news come to Mary and Joseph? How does it come to the shepherds? How does it come to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents? It comes from what, an angel, a messenger. And what are we hearing? That there's good news. Of what? And hope. So first century uh, humans would have been aware of that. So when we see this good news, it means that there's peace and prosperity. And there is hope right in front of them. And so when John the Baptist was declaring, repent for the kingdom of God is near, that is good news. Now, what's going to happen in all four of the Gospels, particularly Luke, Luke's going to go, this is what's so crazy. It's not good news like a moment in history. It's not good news around just what's happened in the, in the current circumstances. The good news is not that we want to battle. The good news is that we'll always be victorious because there is someone to put the good news, the hope in, and that's Jesus. So John the Baptist is going to show up and he's going to point to Jesus. Jesus! is greater. So, okay, everybody's excited. So imagine this first century people are hearing this. They're going, finally, 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 the good news. Let's hear all this happens. John the Baptist points to Jesus. The heavens open up. What's going to happen next? <laughs> what happens next, guys, is kind of a buzzkill. John the Baptist, I mean, Luke is going to go in this long, long writing about a lot of random people. And at first glance, it's really easy to skip over, but I don't want us to skip over it. Now, we're not going to be able to read every verse and go through it, so you can take a deep breath there. Don't take too deep a breath, because I got more notes than usual, um, and lots and lots of stuff for the felt board. But what we're going to see here is the story of Jesus, how Luke just didn't know. Uh, Jesus is genealogy, right? That word genealogy, they got the same word gene, same thing as Genesis, like our origin story. So that he wants to know where Jesus. He wants you to know where Jesus comes from. But instead of me reading it, because I can't pronounce the names, I just want you to listen to Luke chapter uh, 3 just for a second. And I'm going to highlight some verses. And so here it is, uh, Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus' life. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezli, the son of Nahai, the son of Mart, the son of Mathathias, the son of Simon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodat, the son of Yohanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Amadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Yorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eleachim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amimadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nohon, the son of Serug, the son of Rui, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalan, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That riveting? Aren't you excited about this? Typically what happens here, if you're brand new, haven't been here a while online, whatever that is, just happened to stumble across us. Uh, typically we take a passage of scripture and I just read every word of it and talk about it for too long, most weeks, right? But this is a lot of words to talk about, a lot of scripture, so we're not going to do that. So this is going to be a little different than what we usually do. I'm just going to highlight some very specific things. And what I want to highlight is all about two words. You might be aware of them. If not, let me remind you of them or teach them for the first time. The first one is this word providence, Right? This is what we just declare. Jesus literally says, you take what the enemy meant for, for evil and you turn it into good. So this word providence, which you see throughout the scriptures, is a couple of things. I want you to see God's eye, God's hand, and God's heart, right? The word providence literally means God sees everything. Everything. That means he sees our election. That means he sees all the stuff happening behind the scenes. That he sees all the lies and deception. He sees it all. He sees all the scheming. He sees all the plans. God sees it all. There is nothing that God doesn't see. So the nice part about that is we take kind of a deep breath and go, okay, God knows exactly what's going on. God knows exactly what's going on. Now, if you're not a believer, that sounds really, really confusing and not that hopeful. For those of us who walk in that Jesus is Lord, the one who declared the world to, into existence with his words, right? For us, we go, ah, oh, okay. God sees it all. But he doesn't just see it all. This is what's important. He's actually working in it all. That means every single piece of news, every single statement, God is taking those things, and he is bending and shaping them, eventually, for your and my good, and for his glory. But he doesn't just see everything. He doesn't just work in everything. He is actually doing all those things with deep compassion and love for his people. Right? So God sees what's happening in our country. God sees what happens in our world, and he's going, I am going to bend and shape this for your good and my glory. And he's going to do it with a heart that thinks about you and cares and has a plan for you. And his goal in all this, hear me, hear me, is that you and him would be together forever. That's his goal, right? And so when we see the word providence, it just means God. God is at work. That's really good news. That means you and I, we can't really mess it up, right? And so that's where it gets confusing because there's this belief, well, why would God do that, especially since we're so bad? Right? And um, what we understand, we'll cover it today, is um, from the beginning of time, people were broken. Right? At the base level, the reason we have so many rules and regulations in our country is because there's this distrust in people. 
right? That's why you have speed limits. That's why you have all these laws, because the reality is people don't trust other people to do the right thing. And you know why people don't trust people to do the right thing? Because they don't, right? And so at the base level, people are really, really broken. And you see that when you start the book of Genesis, that Genesis 1, chapter 10 and 11 are just time and time again, that there is a broken people who said, we got it from here. We'll take care of it. We're in control. We want it our way. And over and over again, they just ruin their life. Over and over again. And what we're going to see throughout the Old Testament is that people would ruin their life, and in that moment, they would cry out to God. So Genesis 1 to, you know, 11 is this story over and over again of people like you and I who just can't get it right. But something happens in Genesis 11 and 12. It's like God actually comes after hitting the reset button in the story of Noah. You'll hear about that in a little while. After hitting the reset button with the story of the Tower of Babel, what God does is he makes a declaration, and it's called a covenant. So not only is God, I want you to know the word providence, I want you to know the word covenant, and that is a promise without stipulations. That means even if you don't pay your mortgage, God is not going to foreclose on you or bankrupt you. Right? It's a promise without stipulations. And so we're going to see these things happen over and over again. And so what this story is of the genealogy is a story, hear me, of covenant. It's a story of going, hey, yeah, humans can't get it right. You're not going to fix this. And what God promises is he's still going to bless people. He's still going to, he's still going to save people. He's still going to fulfill all the promises. And so it's a story of covenant. And so we're going to see that play out today. But here's the problem. When you read the very first verse, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it gets really confusing. Let me just read it to you real quick, and this is what it says. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30, pretty interesting, 30 years preparing for this. He grew in wisdom, stature, favor of God, and favor of man. And now he's about to go spend a couple years doing ministry at 30, he's 30, being the son of Joseph. You see that? Uh, you see that as a supposed son, right? So now we have this new guy. We got Joseph. Got it? Really, really important. So being the son of Joseph. So Jesus has a dad. This is the beginning of the genealogy. So these are the origins of Jesus. Jesus has the, is the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, or Heli. Right? There you go. We think we keep reading, and yet, for the last thousand years or more, uh, people have pulled this passage and say, well, see this passage? That is evidence that the Bible is not true. Not true. Why? Let me, why? Because there's a different um, gospel, um, a biographical sketch of Jesus' life written by a guy named Matthew, a tax collector turned disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus. And he starts out his uh, gospel, the good news that there is a Savior and King. He starts out his gospel with a different genealogy. And this genealogy, let me just read it to you real quick. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Just going to read two verses. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, You see that? This is really, really complicated. Because now we got uh, Luke saying that Joseph's father was Heli. We got Matthew saying Joseph's father, uh, Joseph's father was Jacob. Now, um, what people would say, this is, this is a counterexample, right? If you make a claim, the way that you prove a claim to be false is you find one thing false about the whole theory, right? And so they're going, hey, how can you believe this gospel when Matthew, or when Luke says that Joseph's the son of Heli, and Matthew says, Joseph's the son of Jacob. So does that make the Bible false? Right? And many times people just try to gloss over and go, just keep reading, don't pay attention, look over here, right? So I learned growing up. It's just don't pay attention to these things. It, you'll learn it in heaven, or maybe you won't, but it won't matter. It's going, but if the Bible is saying two different things. That means, does that mean that it's a lie? 
Does that mean it's untrustworthy? Right, if you can find an example where a writer of the Bible declared uh, something that was not true, and you had people like Peter in the Scripture saying that all this is living and active and it's perfect, it's God's God's word, but all of a sudden God has two different words, what do you do with that? Now, to understand this, you've got to understand a couple different things. We have, um, so we have, we have uh, two different uh, Gospels. We've got Matthew, and now we have Luke. Now, to understand these Gospels, Matthew was a tax collector um, who was a Jew, but was kind of kicked out of the Jewish club because he kept stealing money from people, right? And then all of a sudden he falls in love with Jesus and starts following Jesus. And now, at the end of his life, definitely after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, he... It was going to write a, a gospel, a story, a biographical sketch of uh, Jesus' life. Right? Now, the interesting thing here is uh, Matthew and Mark were written earlier than Luke. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1 that he read all the written documents. So Luke is aware of this. And he is a brilliant, brilliant researcher, doctor, scientist, investigative journalist. So Luke knows what Matthew said, right? And so Luke is going to tell us something different than what Matthew said. And so you got, okay, what are these two different things? Now, um, Matthew, uh, he was a Jew, and he wrote his gospel, his biographical sketch about Jesus' life, his biography there, uh, um, to a Jewish audience. So in Matthew's gospel, what you're going to see in the genealogy is it starts um, with uh, Jesus and then Jacob. Then uh, It starts with a different one, right? You're going to see this, but it, it, it goes all the way back to a guy named Abraham. So we'll talk about Abraham in a little while. So Matthew's gospel starts with Abraham. You got it? So it goes all the way back. And there's a reason for this, because Abraham, Abraham was the guy that God hit the reset button with, made a covenant, and said to all of his people, all the Israelites, that he would make a way where there's no way. He actually told Abraham that, he would, that he'd be the father of many nations. And through him, the whole world will be blessed. So Jews loved Abraham. And so what, they were trying, what Matthew's trying to say is, hey, look, uh, God declared he was going to give a king, and it was going to come through the line of the Israelites, right? He was going to make all things right new. And so it was really important for Jews to go, is Jesus one of us? You got it? Is Jesus one of us? So he's going to go up Joseph's line, all the way back in genealogy, all the way up the patriarchal line, and he's going to, the, he's going to declare that Jesus was one of those. This was important because at the beginning, all Jews wanted to do was wanted a king and a president and a savior to make Israel great again. Right? And so Matthew's going to start his biographical stats going, hey, I want you to know that Jesus comes through the line of Abraham. And he's going to point out that it comes through the line of Abraham through uh, uh, Jesus' stepdad, Joseph. Right? And so he's going to show the line there. And he says, Jesus came from Joseph who came from Jacob, okay? So you got the whole thing there. And so Matthew is writing to a very Greek audience, right? He wants you to know that, I mean, I'm sorry, very Jewish audience. Now Luke, on the other hand, he's not Jewish. He doesn't care about Jewish pedigree. There's no interest in it. And he's writing to people who don't care about Jewish pedigree. In fact, they don't even like Jews. So he's writing to them. They've been abused by Jews. They've been oppressed by Jews. And so when Luke is writing his gospel, trying to help people have certainty in who Jesus is, he is not going to chase after and try to go, hey, Jesus was a Jew. You know why? Because they didn't care. In fact, they had no interest in that. What they want to know was, is Jesus one of us? Like, 
Does he have the same experiences as me? Was he blameless and perfect? Did he come from God? Did he really die and come back to life? So Luke is writing to a completely different audience. So Matthew goes back to Abraham. Now Luke is a little different. He's going to go all the way, all the way back to the beginning, Noah. You'll see that a little bit later in the message. And so they're two different audiences. But that doesn't actually solve the problem of why there are two different daddies. Right? Why is there two different daddies? Now, some people would say this is a leveret marriage. That means uh, they would argue that, well, this was his dad. He died, and so this was his dad's brother. And so this was his, you know, uh, this was his dad, but this was his legal dad. But there's no real evidence of that. Pretty rare to see that happen. So that's probably not what's going on here. So we go, what do we do here? Is the Bible true? Can we trust these things? Can we trust them? Right? And so, uh, now, what's even more complicated, okay? You ready for this? There's a couple more people you've got to know about in the Scripture. So, uh, long before Jacob, one of his daddy's 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 uh, was this guy named Jeconiah, okay? Now, Jeconiah came from the line of David. So, remember, Matthew's trying to say, hey, he's one of us, comes to the great Israel king, David. And so David had a son named Solomon. You follow me? David had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named Jeconiah. But here's the thing. Jeconiah was a horrible, horrible human being to the point where God goes, hey, I want to keep my covenant, but it ain't coming through you. In fact, he tells Jeconiah he's such a terrible human being that he's not going to bless his offspring, that there's going to be a curse on his blood, right, on his genetic line, so there will never be a king again that comes through from Solomon to Jeconiah down the line. Now, this gets complicated because guess who's Jeconiah's line? This guy named Jacob where Joseph comes. So this would have been really confusing because God has already promised that he's going to curse an entire lineage of people because of a behavior. And yet, God has said, through the line of David, is going to come a king. So you go, well, he can't actually come to a king. All sorts of complications there. So you've got David and Solomon. Now, here's the really crazy thing. Solomon actually had two sons. Two sons. Oh, he had more, but two sons I want to highlight. One was Jeconiah. He's the one who gets cursed. And the other one, whose name was Nathan. Now, through Nathan's line, daughter... Uh, dad, 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 son, we get to a place where there's Heli who has a daughter, we think, named Mary. Okay? So, you see where it says here that in verse 23 of Luke chapter 23, verse 23, it says, uh, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. So, many people go, see, the reason he says as supposed is because Joseph wasn't really Jesus' daddy because God was. But if you look a little deeper, the real reality is probably... That word supposed means more of a, as it was documented. So understand this. Remember I told you, Luke got all the oral traditions, uh, had all the eyewitness accounts, and he would have read all the documents, not just Matthew and Mark. He would have read all the Greek, manu- or all the Greek um, historical documents about genealogies. So he would have gone and tried to figure out everything he can about Jesus, and he would have gone and grabbed all the stuff. So where it says, as supposed, that's a real likelihood that, that means as it was written down to the Greeks and Gentiles. So he would have gone back to the courthouse, whatever that is, and he would have gotten it. Now, what would be interesting here is he would have actually saw Mary and said, ooh, Mary's also from the line of David, and her dad is Eli. And through this line comes Nathan. So what this means here is that uh, this is so uh, complicated, but I want you to see it because it's so nuanced and so brilliant, and God, providence, and covenant are working, that through, through Jeconiah, he has the bloodline, but there's a curse there. But through Nathan, who didn't come from there, from the other side, through his lineage comes Mary. So Jesus has all the blood lineage, but because he, Joseph isn't his real dad, he doesn't have the blood curse. 
right? He has all the blood and lineage, but doesn't have the blood curse. But he also has rights to the heir of David because following up through that would be Nathan and Solomon and David. So God's promise can happen this way, but the curse will not happen. You following? So complicated. So what's happening here when Luke says, as was supposed, the father of Joseph, what we're pretty confident is the case is Luke is actually pointing to Mary's line, but Greeks hate women. And they weren't allowed to even write their names in these genealogies. They weren't allowed to have deeds for their homes. So, uh, so Mary's name was not allowed to be in the record books. Just wasn't. Greeks, Gentiles, they didn't like women. And so instead, what Luke is doing here, is he's going, I want you to see this, because Jesus has two different lineages, and so Luke is actually going up from the mom's lineage, but because he can't write her name there, he's going to write, uh, he's going to write Joseph's name, but then immediately point to Joseph's father-in-law. So this is his legal father, not his birth father, not his biological father. This is his father-in-law. Really, really complicated. Not even the point of the message, but I do want you to see that even the nuance of this. That, uh, so thousand years earlier, hundreds, hundred years earlier, when, when God would look at Jeconiah and go, it's not going to happen. We're not going to bless you. You are an evil, evil tyrant. And you see the justice. You would think that the enemy would have been so thrilled to go, aha, there is no solution. And yet, here we go. Luke is going, let me show you what the solution is. So Joseph, the son of Eli, right? And then it begins. So two different genealogies, one written to Jews, one written to Greeks. And so that is where the two different come from. So you got Luke, you got David, you got Nathan, you got Solomon. And so I want you to see here, such, a, such an important part that God is bending and shaping all this to fulfill the promise. Now, when we think about covenant and providence, this is the word I want you, I want you to think about, this idea. And one of the books that we give, if, if we um, dedicate a new baby or do an infant baptism, um, a pedo baptism instead of a credo baptism, that's an adult one, right? Um, we, what we do is we always give the parents two things. We give them a check, typically for $50, and we say, would you start a bank account? And every year, would you match this, double this, whatever you can? So when they turn 18, that you can send them on their first mission trip, right? Because we want you to see that you are raising a, you know, an adult who's going to love Jesus and change the world, right? But the other thing we give them is what's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I would just recommend, if you have children, you should get this Bible. Um, in fact, if you don't know much about the scriptures, I would recommend you read the Bible regardless, right? So, so important here. I read this one because it's so good. But in that, uh, she describes uh, uh, the, the idea of covenant and promise, and this is what she says. Um, God loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking always and forever love. So what we see here is God is still working all this out. So what do we do with this genealogy? And so let me just highlight a couple of things for you, and I'm going to bring some of these guys down because we don't need them all. There you go, Mary. There you go, Joseph. So what I want to point out is just this covenant that happens multiple times. So what we're going to see in Luke's genealogy is he's going to start working backwards, and he's going to highlight some of these great heroes of the Jewish faith and uh, people that history would know about. And so the first one I want you to see here, you got is David. So you got David here, right? So David, and what Luke is going to do is he's going to show these, this whole lineage, but in the whole lineage, what he's hoping you'll see is that God is bending and shaping all things for our goodness and glory, and that he is always going to provide this covenant. And what's really interesting in this promise in the Old Testament is there's multiple covenants that God made. So I just want to highlight each of those covenants, four of them, and I'll read the scriptures to you so you understand. And so God actually makes these promises without stipulation to his people, and he actually talks to specific people. 
So the first one you see in the scriptures is um, David. And let me just tell you the story of David. This is 2 Samuel uh, verse 7, beginning of verse 11. This is a long time before Jesus shows up. And this is what he says. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, so this is God speaking, um, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that, you, that the Lord will make you a house. So he's talking to the nation of Israel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, watch this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish this kingdom. So uh, hundreds of years earlier, God speaks to Israel through this guy named Samuel about their first, this, this great warrior king. This will be their second king of Israel. And he says, I am going to raise up from his offspring um, a shall build from your house, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom. For, I will establish the kingdom. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is the promise. He is pointing to Jesus, and he says this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits in, uh, I'm sorry, this is talking about the nation of Israel, uh, and David. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will do not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Okay, let me tell you about this guy named David. David is going to make some mistakes, but here's the thing. It's his covenant. God is saying he's going to discipline him. There's going to be pain for the nation of Israel, but God will not turn his back on him. Watch what it says next. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, and as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house, watch this, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. So here's what he's saying. First covenant we see here uh, that, that Luke's going to be pointing out in the genealogy is that God says to David, through your children's 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 children, the God of the universe is going to establish his kingdom forever. So this is a promise to Jesus, and what he is saying is there will be a king. So when John the Baptist is saying Jesus is greater, what he's saying is whoever you want to put your hope in, from the beginning of time, God had been bending and shaping all things, and he was giving us someone to actually put our hope in. That's Jesus. So the very first covenant, the Davidic covenant, if you want to call it that, was this idea that Jesus was going to come and that God was going to establish a king. Establish a king. We are going to get a king, and he'll reign forever. First promise. No matter what you do, no matter who you vote for, no matter what happens, God and his covenant promises and in his providence are going to give us a king. That's the first thing we can kind of point out here through David is we're going to get a king. Now, as you keep reading down through the gene genealogy, the next person that I want to highlight is going to be Abraham. So we got David, and now we have Abraham. Got it? So going down the line, and so let me read to you about Abraham. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 12. This is where God makes this covenant promise. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go to the land that I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all, in you all, the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God, remember, promises in the Old Testament that will be fulfilled in Jesus. He says to Abram, hey, the world's really broken. And what we know about Abram, who becomes Abraham, Abram is just the Hebrew word for daddy. You add the aha in the middle of it. It just means big. So Abram goes from daddy to big daddy. At this point, he's old. His wife is old, and they can't have kids. And God goes, I'm going to still bless you. Kind of similar to Zechariah and Elizabeth having a kid in their old age. And so he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless all people through you. That is a covenant. No matter what you do, there's going to be blessing. Hear me. No matter what you do, God is still going to bless you. 
No matter what you do, even this year, God will still give you blessings and give you hope and all this. Not this prosperity, you say it, you claim it, none of those things. But God sees you, and he's allowing you to breathe, and he's giving you good things, even in the middle of our complicated world. And he says, Abram, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you Abraham, and no matter what you do, I'm going to bless you. And he goes, look up at the sky. You see all those stars? See all those stars? Your descendants are going to be even greater than that because you are going to be blessed, right? And so the Jews, and Matthew had been really excited about that. They're going, all oh, through this lineage comes the blessing, right? So in this, this next first one, you got David, which is reminding us that we have a king and a kingdom. So the question comes, okay, if there's a king and a kingdom, how do you get to participate in the king and the kingdom, right? How do you get to participate? And here's what it says. It's Abraham, remember? Uh, uh, here's what it says in Galatians chapter 3. What we get is Paul tells us this picture of how um, Abraham got to participate in it. Let me just read it to you. Uh, verse 6. Uh, just as Abraham, watch this, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that, that is, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham in the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you want to get in on the kingdom? This is what he tells Abraham. This is what Abraham did. First thing he did, he believed. He believed and placed his faith in God. Right? So what you see here is this is where God says, go to the land, I'll show you. Now here's what's crazy. Abraham didn't do it right. In fact, um, God says he's going to have a child with his wife, but it still doesn't happen. It still doesn't happen. And so instead, he gets another lady pregnant. That's where Ishmael comes from. You want to follow Ishmael's line? That's where Muhammad comes. That's where the Islam comes from. This, this lineage here, right? So you see that happen here. So Abraham doesn't do it right. He sleeps with another lady. His, maid, his wife's maidservant gets her pregnant. Not only that, multiple times, twice, twice. I wouldn't recommend this. He gives his wife away to someone else. He literally tells someone who thinks his wife's pretty, and that he's afraid he's going to die. He goes, she's not my wife. She's my sister. I would never recommend that as a husband. Okay? So this isn't a good guy. This isn't a guy who does everything right. But what did he do? He believed that God would bless him. What did he do? He had faith in God. So the way by which you participate in the kingdom, you go, okay, how do I get in on God's covenant? How do you get in on God's covenant? It's not by your behavior. It's not by your performance. It all is about believing that God is going to care for you, make a way where there's no way, and placing your faith and hope in that. Abraham, the way that he participated, he got up and he started walking to a land he didn't know. Went in on the kingdom in the middle of this. We cannot place our hope in a candidate. We place our hope in a savior. So do you believe that there actually is a savior? Do you believe there's a king and do you believe that you can put your faith in him? So that's the first thing. So we see in Luke's genealogy, he's going to highlight David and reminding us that there's a king, that God will rule and reign. And then he's going to show us Abraham to show us how we get to participate in the ruling and reigning. It's all through faith. It's all through actually believing this. So when you get up tomorrow and go, God is still in charge. Can you say that and believe it, right? And so we see it. So you go, okay, well, okay, the king, kingdom, I want in on that. The way I do it is I believe and have faith, but how do you believe and have faith, right? What does that actually look like? Which leads us to the next covenant, right? How do you have faith? How do you believe? Because you've tried it before. I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to believe. But then you get up and just go about your day and mess it up. I want to believe, and then you feel shame. I want to believe. So how do you actually believe? You want to know how to have faith? Here's the day to do it, right? So here's what we got next. We got Noah. Noah, Noah, Noah is what the next one in the lineage. Now this is interesting um, because this is all before God makes the covenant. In fact, many of you are probably familiar with the story. This is the flood. And guys, this is a horrific story. I joke about it. That how in the world does this become a nursery? Like, decor do you understand that god wiped out an entire people like 
He filled their lungs with water, and they drowned miserable deaths. So this is messy, messy, messy. And so some of us wrestle with how in the world could a loving God do that? The way that I point it out and point it out every single time is many of you had to put your dog to sleep, right? By that I mean put them down, kill them. You killed your dog, right? You paid to have your dog die. Like that, at just, you know, first glance, that seems terrible. But it's not when you think about the nuance of it. Like you understood your dog was in pain. I've, I've sat with my dog as they were injected terrible and you you had those feelings right you know that that's life that's watched life go out of your dog's life right and you didn't do it because you're evil or mean in fact it was so painful for you you did it because you're actually loving and gracious and merciful and you knew that there's no hope nothing good left for your dog right so an act of mercy was actually putting your dog out of its misery so imagine god looking at a people group and seeing nothing good come from it just all horrible terrible no hope whatsoever so god in his mercy what does he do he wipes out people and in pain and sorrow this is complicated but good news for you so if god sees no hope he takes people out of their misery here's what that means for you if you hear nothing else today that means the fact that you're living and breathing right now guys the fact that your heart is beating and air is filling your lungs if god is merciful and sees no hope for you he would not keep you here just wouldn't. So just by default, the fact that you are here right this second means God sees blessing and hope in your future. Even if you don't feel it, even if you don't see it, even if it's a tough season, God has not put you out of your misery, which means there's hope and a plan for you. The other thing you got to see is when God makes this declaration, he basically tells Noah, hey, I'm going to wipe out the earth and you're going to build an ark and you're going to place your hope and faith in that ark. You're going to get in it and you're going to be saved for it. When God tells Noah that, he's 100 years old. I mean, 500 years old. 500. That's old, right? Now, when when they actually get on the ark, he's 600 years old. Do you see this? So there's another 100 years that God still is gracious and kind and slow to anger these people. So it's not like he had a bad temper, reacted, and just wiped them out the next day. The people who were doing damage to themselves and all the people around, God gave them another 100 years to repent. More than you'll live on this planet, they got another 100 years to repent before all this happens. So Noah builds this ark. So again, we're going, okay, how do we get on the kingdom? You believe and you have faith. Well, how do you actually believe and have faith? This is what it says, Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, ready for this? I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This is covenant, meaning without stipulation. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for the beast of the earth. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant, see it again, with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You got some things you got to figure out in terms of uh, climate change, how you resolve that and go, well, this fear that it's all going to be flooding again. Well, according to scriptures, that's not going to happen. That, that's some good news for us. But beyond that, what God says is, hey, I haven't had to, I wiped everyone out, put them out of their misery, but I won't do that again. So you can take some deep breaths, right? That's where we see the rainbow. God reminds them of covenant. But you go, well, why did he choose Noah? Why did he choose Noah? Why did Noah get to be on the kingdom when no one else did? Why did Noah get to be on the ark when, uh, when no one else did, right? And what it tells us during the scriptures is this word. It's so, so interesting. He said that Noah found favor in God's sight. He looked on the earth and he says, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one. This doesn't mean Noah was perfect. In fact, we know that because after Noah gets off the boat, he gets trashed, like blackout drunk, 
he gets naked, dancing around, and where this, one of his kids are laughing at him, the other kid's covering him. This is a God who's just as broken as we are. So this wasn't that Noah was perfect and good and did everything right. This isn't Noah was really good, so God saved him. It actually says Noah found favor in God's sight. That word favor in the Hebrew is actually the very similar word in what we would get from the Greek of grace. Here's what that means. God just was really gracious to Noah. That's it. Not that Noah was good, not that Noah did everything right. What it means is that God gave him favor. He gave him favor. Meaning one that Noah performed correctly is that God was gracious anyway. Which I'm telling you, you're taking deep breaths right now. You live. Your heart's beating. That is grace from God. So when it says, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's because we're actually breathing. So the way by which we have faith, the way by which we believe, is not even what you can do on your own. Your faith and your belief doesn't come from willpower. You don't just keep going, I can do it, I can fix this, I can believe. Like, I remember that, guys. I remember being in seventh grade, eighth grade, so embarrassing. We had a pool at our house. And I remember thinking about faith of a mustard seed. You can move a mountain. And I kid you not, over and over again, for about an hour, I kept going, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith. And I kept trying to walk on water. Crazy, right? I kept trying to walk on water, thinking, well, if Jesus can, he gives me faith, that means I can. I literally would step in the water over and over again. And I, I mean, it's crazy. I was actually thinking, one of these times I'm going to get it. And then I remember feeling so ashamed. Like, I should be able to do that somehow. Because God tells me about the faith of a mustard seed, I can move a mountain. No, the reality is what I think that, that, that means is if you see a mountain that you double. Right? This is Abraham. Uh, this is go to the land, I'll show you. And he's moving there. And as he's moving there, God is giving him his grace and blessings over and over again. So faith is an action step. Right? And this is why favor is so important. Right? Because many of you don't move in faith because you're afraid you're going to mess it up. And you probably will. But it's okay. Right? Many of you are just kind of hamstrung. You can't make the move. You can't leave the job. You can't say the thing because you are so afraid you're just going to mess it up. But this is really important because God gives favor. You know, it tells us in chapter 5, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Abraham saw God. How did he see God? Because he uh, believed and had faith, right? And so this is the greatest news about what faith looks like. You don't have to get it right. You could mess up the whole thing. And yet the scriptures tell us if you have a pure heart in it, you're going to see God. The reality is many of us don't see God because we haven't used our faith in anything because we're so afraid we're going to mess it up. It has nothing to do with your performance or what you do next. It has everything to do with the purity of your heart. So how about talking to God each day and going, God, I am going to try and do what you say. And the only reason I want to do that, God, is just to please you, right? Just, just to please you. And so when you have God's favor, when you know that he's not going to beat you up for messing it up, he's not going to do that. In fact, when we see the parable of the talents, there's three different people who kind of invest in the kingdom, right? One invests five, one invests two. One goes, I don't, I don't trust myself. I can't fix it. And instead, they just hide it in the ground, right? And God goes, you wicked and lazy servant, right? It's not that those guys were so intellectually brilliant in their investment. It had to do with the please their master so you want the blessing you want to experience i'm dead you got to have you have to leave and have faith you want to know how you have faith it's all through grace god gives it to you so here's what's really really important here guys you cannot mess up hear me you cannot vote for you can't vote for if you do it with a pure heart if it's not about what you want it's not about your entitlements. It's not about you getting something out of the you and you building your kingdom. And it's all about building God's kingdom. If your heart is pure in that, then you can't mess it up. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
Why? Go see God. You want, you want to have you want to have an experience to God, then you have to have a pure heart. In fact, many of you may actually go, well, God keep, I feel like God wants me to vote for this candidate, but I can't do it. Well, why not? Why not? I just can't do it. I can't, I can't bring myself to it. Well, do you believe God wants you to do that? Well, he does. Then you can't mess it up. Blessed are the pure in heart, but they'll see God. So what we see happen is God gave Noah favor. God gave Noah favor. Not because he did it right, but because he is gracious. And God gives us grace. Right? The beginning of faith is by having a pure heart, knowing that God is gracious to us. And so we see this, um, the Noahic covenant. And then, as we read through all the scriptures, right, you see all the scriptures that we just read, the genealogy, he highlights David, he highlights Abraham, he highlights um, Noah, right? That's history throughout the scriptures, those people we know. And then he's going to highlight one more. One more. Let me just read this verse to you. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 38. This is the end of the passage that we would have covered today. And here's what it says. Luke 3, 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So you have all these different covenants, but then it comes down to one more. Adam. So what Jesus is saying is, all right, uh, Luke is telling us in this moment is that there really is this whole lineage that goes all the way back to Adam. Remember I told you, uh, the, the Jews just wanted to know if Jesus was Jewish. And the Greeks just wanted to go, is he one of us? Is he a man? And so what Luke is going to do is he's going to chart it all the way back. And he's going to go where Jesus comes from. 66, 67, 68, you know, genealogy, like all the way up, you know, lines, all the way up, all the way up. Thousands of years. He's going to cover it all. And he's going to go, it all originated with Adam. So there's one more covenant. It's this covenant that God makes with Adam. So here's what I want you to see. Throughout human history, that you and I were all included, God actually only fathers, personally, two people. Got that? God, through his spirit, fathers Jesus and Mary. And from the very beginning of time, God made out of nothing something. And so when we see when Mary gets pregnant, it says the Holy Spirit came upon her. Right? This, this mighty breath breathes into her. When Adam was formed, he was created as a nothing. Nothing. And then he became something. He was a, he was a ball of cells. And he was dead, laying there. And now some, some scientists would go, well, he was actually living, but he was living without a soul. Right? And so that's where you could have this homo erectus and all these different things. Or he was living without a soul. Maybe some of you land there. Or maybe he was just nothing, and then he was something. He was just a clump of cells laying there. Then it says God reached down and he breathed life into him. Meaning, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, fathers two children. Two children. Fathers two children. And I don't have time to cover it up. Boy, do I wish I could. And then Paul in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. You should read the whole thing this week. He's going to explain the complications of these two children. Remember, Luke's going, I want you to see the first child. So what Luke is saying is, hey, there's two of them. And next week you'll see what Jesus does to conquer what Adam didn't do in temptation, right? So there's two of them. And what uh, Paul tells us in Romans, he says, this guy messed it all up. Right, when he had the option to live in God's kingdom and participate in God's kingdom, to walk in purity of heart, to receive the faith and blessing, this guy decides that he'd walk away from God and do his own thing. He chose his own path, right? And in that, what happened is he created muck and mire for himself and his wife and his kids. Literally, his children murder, one murders the other. 
and we see just a horrific kind of pattern and trajectory that happens throughout human history where people over and over again chose their plan over God's, right? And people over and over again declared they wanted nothing to do with God, and guess what? Eventually they all got their wish, right? And so there's two people, and so uh, what Paul tells us, he's like, hey, one person got us into it. So Luke is going to chart down. Now he's going to show us over the next several weeks what Jesus does to make all this right. But the big picture is this. We were all in Adam. Meaning all of our dads, 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 dads eventually go back to Adam, who was birthed by God. He was the son of God. So one person gets us into all this. All in. One person gets us all into it, right? And what Luke says is, if one person can get us all into it, then perhaps, I mean, Paul says, if one person can get us all into this, then perhaps could one person get us out of it? Could one person get us out of it? And he says, and if he could get out of this, what if he didn't just get us out of it, but he got us into something even better? Right? In other words, what Paul tells us is, you can either be in Adam, or you can be in Christ. Meaning, it's up to you. You can either be over here, which is where you are right now, but you can choose to go and place yourself in Jesus. So he's literally going, hey, you got to follow the genealogy because one person wrecked the whole thing. Only two people have dad as God is their actual biological father. One messed it up, and God sends his son to make it all right. And you can choose by faith to believe that you can walk away from being an Adam right? To Abraham, you can go to the land I'll show you. You can walk away from the kingdom you're currently in and go, I want to live in your kingdom, Jesus. And you can walk in and place yourself in that. Right? So it's up to you. Now, as we finish up, I want you to think about something. When we go back to the Noahic covenant, there's something really interesting. How did those people, how did Noah's family get saved? Any ideas how they got saved? What'd they do? What kept them from death? Where'd they put their trust? Where'd they place themselves? So we know they trust Jesus, but like, fit, like, not figuratively, literally, what did they do? What did they do? Here's what they did. They literally took their bodies and they placed themselves in an ark. The reason they didn't drown is because they went from dry land that was starting to get wet and they placed themselves in a covering or an ark. Got it? Like, this isn't spiritual. This is just literal. The way that by which they saved is they went from the kingdom they were living in and they placed themselves in the kingdom that God had told them to build. Got it? I mean, this is, this is literal. The reason they lived was because of this. They placed themselves in the ark. Did you know that word ark only shows up one more time in the scriptures? And it's not the ark of the covenant. That's a different ark. There's one other time that God uh, uses the scriptures to talk about this. And this is the other time. It's the story of Moses. You know that little basket that his mom put him in to save him because uh, the Pharaoh was murdering all the firstborn boys, or all the boys? You know, that, that was called an ark. Two times. So how did Moses get saved? Same thing. He was placed in an ark. He was placed in a place of God's protection with faith and trust. And so the crazy thing when you think about this ark, there is an option for you guys. There's another wooden box. There's another baby basket. And so how did all of us get saved? Well, God sent his son. Placed him in an ark. Protecting him from all the brokenness of our kingdom. Gave him his own kingdom. And you want to get in on the, the kingdom? Then what do you do? Well, Noah placed himself in an ark. God placed Moses in an ark. Your option here, in this series and this time, is actually to take yourself place yourself in the hope and the belief of who Jesus is and you place yourself in Jesus who God placed in a manger.
right? And so when you see this, you've got to see the brilliance of who God is. He's going, look, one person got it all messed up. One person makes it all right. And the only thing you have to do, same way as Abraham, you've got to pick up your stuff and go to the place that God will show you. And where God's calling you to go is in his kingdom. So you've got to pick up your stuff and go to the kingdom. So what we're going to do, and we're not going to, uh, this isn't going to be kind of a reflective song again. Listen, we have to start bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, right? What Jesus tells us is, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what that means is, bring yourself and bring yourself to Jesus. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, for that is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of but tra- uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know and be able to test what God's will for you is. So the picture of that is God's going. What you do in view of what Jesus does for you is you actually bring your body back to him. And this is that your spiritual act of worship. So today, as we close, we're going to bring our bodies back to him as a spiritual act of worship. And we're going to declare that God made a covenant, that God made a promise. And we're going to bring ourselves in worship in song, in celebration, and go, we are in his kingdom. And so maybe for the first time, this act of you trying to say these words out loud that we're going to lead you in, or sing these words as you believing and having faith, because God will give you his favor. And so the band's going to come up, and we're going to conclude in song. Let's pray for us. Jesus, you are kind and loving and gracious. And God, every single one of these people right here, right now, are breathing and living meaning they are breathing in your breath, which means they have found favor and grace from you. God, we receive that favor and grace, and we receive that grace and the courage of that to actually be able to go and place all of our hope in you. So God, with this moment of worship, be us, taking that step forward the same way Abraham did, taking that step forward the same way that Noah did, trusting in the kingdom the way that David did. God, when we place our hope and, and hope and trust in you and go to your feet at your throne and trust you now in your promises. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?
Amen. Thank you guys so much for leading us. What a thing to declare in such a season as this. Great is your faithfulness, and may we, uh, do as the song says, put our faith in that. May that be our anchor. Thank you guys so much for that. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining us again today. This is a crazy, awesome series. Again, if you have questions, go ahead and text those in. We would love to engage in them further this Tuesday at noon in our Overtime podcast. And then come back next week for week three of Jesus for President. Uh, and once again, our Eagles game is today at 1 o'clock. Uh, we know we have a lot of Eagles fans in the church, so we're not going to recognize all those other teams. Uh, but that's today at 1 o'clock. If we happen to change that for any reason, we'll post on our Facebook page so you can keep tuned there. I want to say you guys off with a benediction real quick. May the peace of God be in our hearts. May the grace of God be in our words. And may the love of God be in our hands. May the joy of God be in our souls. Thank you guys so much for being here. We will see you next week. Take care.